coming up on Philosophy Talk. Before the beginning, there was this turtle. The ancient cosmos, when the Earth stood still. How could the smartest, most observant people on Earth believe for millennia that the sun and all the planets and all the stars revolved around the little old Earth? And the turtle was alone, and he looked around, and he saw his neighbor, which was his mother. It sure looks like the sun and the stars and all the planets revolve around the Earth. Can we really criticize the ancients for getting it so wrong? And he lay down on top of his neighbor, and behold, she bore him in tears, an oak tree. Wasn't ancient cosmology part science, part philosophy, and part religion? Our guest is Carlo Rovelli, author of Seven Brief Lessons in Physics. The Ancient Cosmos, coming up on Philosophy Talk. Hi, I'm Josh Lampy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thanks for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk. Did you know we've got a library of more than 500 episodes over at our website? Yeah, at philosophytalk.org, we question everything. Except your intelligence. From Aristotle to Zeno, from anarchy to Zen. Become a subscriber today at philosophytalk.org. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. We're continuing conversations that begin down at Stanford University around the philosophy department where Ken teaches, and I did for 40 years. 40 wonderful years, John. Now, today, we're thinking about ancient cosmology. We call it When the Earth Stood Still. This is the first of eight episodes in a, in a new series, A Philosophical Guide to the Cosmos. Cosmology, Ken, is the study of the universe, how it was formed, what laws govern its evolution. Cosmology has exploded in the last few decades, but it's hardly new. Theories about the nature, structure, and origin of the cosmos go back thousands of years. Yeah, but you know, ancient theories of the cosmos, there was a lot more myth than science in those. I mean, some people, some of the ancients believed that the universe began as an egg that eventually cracked in two and became the earth and sky. Not much science in that, John. Well, there was a lot of that, no doubt, but don't overgeneralize. Ancient Greek thinkers like Aristarchus and Anaximander, Aristotle and Ptolemy came up with pretty sophisticated cosmological theories. They looked to the heavens, they observed what they could, how the stars moved across the sky, how the sun rose and fell each day, and given their observations, they put together pretty good explanations and theories, reasonable for the time. Seems scientific to me. Yeah, but they got so much wrong, John. Not all of it. They were able to predict things like phases of the moon and even lunar eclipses. Aristarchus had all the planets laid out in the right order from the sun. Yeah, but they thought the Earth stood still at the center of the universe with other planets and suns all revolving around it. They had this idea that all the heavenly bodies were spinning around on a set of concentric set of what they called celestial spheres. That's why, they t why we talk about the music of the spheres. They were just clueless about so many things. Yeah, well, most of them were, but after all, that's what it looks like. The history of science is full of wrong ideas, Ken. Rejecting bad ideas that turn out to be false based on later observation, replacing them with better ones, 
That's progress. We don't dismiss Newton as non-scientific because he thought that space and time were absolute rather than relative. Yeah, I grant you, progress is one of the main hallmarks of real science. But that's another thing against ancient cosmology, John. It progressed very little after Aristotle. And do you know why, at least why, the reason I think so? I think I'm going to learn. Yeah, because <laughs> it got all mixed up with religion. I mean, the idea that everything in the universe literally, literally revolves around us and this little ball that fits so nicely with the Christian idea that we are God's highest creation. And the church, gosh, the church became so wedded to this view of the universe that when Galileo challenged it, he, they, they excommunicated him. Well, I think your picture is over simple. Uh, the religious idea that the world had to make sense because it was a creation of God was a big impetus to scientific progress. Even Newton was wedded to religious ideas. His scientific writings include claims about the supreme being. He said things like, without God, there would be nothing to put the planets in motion. Yeah, but the best thing about the scientific <laughs> revolution is that it led to a shift away from religion. Right? That, that, didn't happen. that didn't happen overnight. But nowadays, no self-respecting scientist would put anything, would attribute anything in their cosmology to the operation of a supreme being. Before the scientific revolution, there wasn't even a clear distinction between natural science on the one hand, religion on the other hand, and even our discipline, philosophy, uh, on the third hand. Well, there may not have been sharp lines marking out science as a distinct discipline, but you've got to give the ancient cosmologists the credit they deserve as scientists. The methods some of them used, observing natural phenomena, using math and logic to develop reasonable explanations, achieving some impressive results making some reliable predictions, that's the heart of science. Yeah, yeah, I, I grant you there's some emerging science there. There's, there's been mythology and philosophy there. There's a lot of stuff. And sorting through this, I think it's worth sorting through this because it'll help us understand the nature of science, what constitutes scientific progress, the difference between science and philosophy. These are good questions, John. Well, and we've really only discussed Greek and Egyptian and Babylonian cosmology, but of course... People from all around the world have been speculating about the origin of the universe for thousands and thousands of years. And so we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Shukan Kalantari, to take a sample of these old creation stories from around the globe. She did it with the help of some very young philosophers. She files this report. Let me take you back, far back, to ancient China. At the beginning of time, the universe was in the shape of one big cosmic egg. Eight-year-old Dylan and I are going to take you back to ancient China. This is one of their universe creation stories. As Dylan says, it starts with the universe as one big cosmic egg. It floated unchanging in a dark void. When the egg broke, a giant named Pangku came out, along with two basic elements. Yin and Yang. The heavy materials in the egg, the yin, settled to make the earth. In the yang, the light materials settled to make the sky. After 18,000 years, Pinku died. His body created the sun, the moon, the wind, the oceans, and everything else on Earth. Humans were created from fleas that lived on Pinku. We are flea people. What do you think of that story, Dylan? That's weird. Because if we're fleas, like, and the fleas on dogs, if they were our size, they would be able to jump like three or four feet. Good point. Hindus have a similar creation myth. It also involves an egg. 
Six-year-old Bella helps narrate this one. Before there was anything, there was only water. Over time, these waters produced one golden egg. And then the egg burst open, and there was Prajapati, a powerful god, half man, half woman. Then he just sat there in the broken egg, not speaking, not moving, for almost an entire year. The first word he finally spoke became the earth. The second word he spoke became the sky. Prajapati could see forever, from the beginning of time to the end of his own life, which was one thousand years. Here's another creation myth, from Scandinavia. Six-year-old Ziri is our guide. Before time existed in ancient Scandinavia, there was a place of fog and ice. And across a huge void was another place. This one was fire demons and fire giants. Eventually, the fire begins to melt the ice. The ice keeps dripping and dripping and dripping until it forms a giant cow named. Um, Adahana. Adumla. This dripping ice also forms a frost giant named Ymir. More giants grow from out of his armpit sweat. Ew. Meanwhile, Adumla created more giants by licking blocks of salty ice. These giants have sex and give birth to the god Odin and his brothers, who in turn kill Ymir, the frost giant. His flesh becomes the earth. His skull becomes the sky. His blood becomes the sea. His brain becomes clouds. His bones become mountains, and his hair—they become trees. Odin and his brothers then take two tree trunks and breathe life into them, creating the first man and woman. But Ziri's not sold on the Scandinavian creation myth. She may not have a theory on the cosmos, but she knows how humans were created. God thought that the world was too. Empty and had no one in it, so he made woman and man to fill the emptiness in the world. That's more or less the plot in the Christian, Jewish, and Muslim creation stories. You know, God, seven days. You've heard it before, but here's a recap from eight-year-old Ezra. In the beginning, there was one God, and He created the heaven and the earth. But the earth was a formless void. And everything was really, really dark. Then God said, "Let there be light." And sure enough, there was light. He separated the light from the darkness, calling one day and the other one night. God saw the light and thought, "Hey, this is good." On the second day, he separated the earth from the heavens and thought, "Yep, still good." Six days later, we have earth, water, plants, and humans. On the seventh day, God rests. I'm happy that God chilled out. Ezra says he likes the story, but he's not sold on it. How could that really happen? Someone who has mystical powers that can create anything. And second of all, space created us, not God. In the beginning, there was nothing, or there was fog and ice, or one big cosmic egg, or one almighty God, or a ton of black holes. It depends on which creation story you're following. One thing we know for sure is that the universe was created about 14 billion years ago, or at least we think we know that. But how it was created, no scientist or philosopher has quite figured that one out yet. For philosophy talk, I'm Shuka Kalantari.
I'm John Perry. With me is my fellow Stanford philosopher, Ken Taylor. Ken, we didn't hear all of the creation myths, but I got the general idea that eggs are important. (laughs) Today, we're asking about ancient thought and what they knew about the cosmos. We're joined now by Carlo Rovelli. He's a professor of theoretical physics at Aix-Marseille University in France. He's author of Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, a really lovely little book that I just recently read. Carlo, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thank you very much. Hi, Ken. Hi, John. Uh, Carlo, you are one of the leading physicists in the world, in my humble opinion. You're one of the inventors of quantum loop gravity. And I have a question. How can a guy who's, who's so involved in the development of contemporary cosmology have time and interest to pursue ancient cosmology? Because they got everything wrong. Well, they didn't get everything wrong. I (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) I love ancient cosmology because uh, actually I think that uh, um, those people were doing the same thing that we are doing today. Uh, So I find myself in the work of some of the ancient cosmologists. That's why I got fascinated by them. So we listened to some different creation myths in the roving philosophical report, and earlier Ken and I talked about ancient... Greek cosmology. So as a scientist, it sounds like you think the Greeks were doing a lot of science as well as being involved in mythology and religion and some philosophy. I mean, were they good scientists? I think they were excellent scientists. There is a, there is a discontinuity between uh, two different uh, uh, ancient cosmologists. There are those uh, uh, like in China, in, uh, in uh, Babylonia, in ancient Egypt, uh, who were doing just uh, stories, mythology. But then at some point in Greece, uh, there was a group of people who started to do um, what I would call real science. And that's where the interest of Einstein cosmology uh, is for a scientist of today. I read that uh, in something that you wrote, I believe, that you think it was a guy, Anaximander? Is that the first? Well, Anaximander was... Yeah, is that the... he, He had a great idea, a revolutionary idea... Is that right? Am I, am I thinking of the right person? That's right. I, I wrote a book, uh, the title is The First Scientist. So um, he's the guy who first understood that the Earth uh, is not sitting on something, but is actually <laughs> uh, flying, uh, that the sky is all around the Earth. He was right. He was totally right. He's the only one who understood it. Uh, he's a totally fascinating person. He's a, he's a genius of science, in my opinion. So how did he develop that idea? I mean, you look up, you see the sky, it's up right? And the earth is down, and you think, you could naturally think there's a natural up and down to the universe, and earth is down, and the sky is up, and the sky is uh, above exactly. us only sky, there's exactly. a song, Exactly, right? that was above the difficulty. Um, on the one hand, it seems simple, right? Because you see the sun going up somewhere and uh, going down some, some other where. It seems natural to think that the sun is not disappearing somewhere. It's a continuing turn around us, and the same for the moon and the same for the stars. So it's sort of natural to think that around us there is a, there is a sky all around us. But then the difficulty is why the Earth does not fall, and that's why he's a genius, because he's uh. realized, he realized that we have wrong ideas in our mind, and we have to change them. And uh, it's not true that there's a universal up, a universal down. Things fall toward Earth. So um, in, in Australia, people are up upside down with respect to me, I'm in Europe. <laughs> yeah, well, that's I, what he understood, I, and that's great. You know, Only a great scientist can understand that, and he was well, right. 
It's a good science. Well, so these guys, they didn't have telescope. They didn't have spectrometry or anything. But they got a lot of stuff sort of, let's call it, observationally right. They got right? a lot and, of stuff observationally right. Yeah, I would yeah, say. They didn't even have Arabic numerals. <laughs> yes, but, but we'll have to dig into this stuff. I mean, I find this a fascinating area, and I'm glad you're here to help us think it through. <laughs> you're you. listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about ancient cosmology. How did the ancient thinkers develop theories about the origins of the universe? What sort of evidence did they have? What kind of predictions could they make? And how much did they get right? The ancients, the cosmos, and the beginnings of science. Plus, your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues. Thank you for listening to this week's free stream. Show your support for Philosophy Talk by becoming a partner in our online community of thinkers. Take it off your taxes and add it to your intellectual credit. Thank you for listening, and thank you for thinking. Because we know the world is round, or spherical at any rate, we have a very different view of the cosmos than most of the ancients. But what made them think the way they did? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor, and we're talking about the ancient cosmos. Our guest is Carlo Rovelli author of Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. So, Carlo, you were saying the ancients got lots right, but they also got lots wrong. I mean, they got, you know, the Earth was the center of, of the universe. There was nothing outside our solar system. So I want to tell, t- tell me then, I want you to tell me two things. What's the biggest thing they got right? And what kept them from s- appreciating what they got wrong for so long? But what's the biggest thing they got right first? Well, the Earth is a sphere, first um they they learn it and it's true and uh, that's a remarkable discovery um few civilizations in the world discovered it in fact only one only the greek civilization all all, wow. all, all the others didn't um and uh, they got more than that they understood that with mathematics you can predict the future and uh, they did it for the sky for the for the heavens so mm, that was a remarkable discovery in a sense so, it was a method now one, of, now one of the things i learned when i was in college yeah, is that they really were. Ptolemaic epicycles and all that stuff really were very predictively, observationally adequate. That's but right. I learned that, but in philosophy of science, we were taught epicyclic theories are bad theories because even though they're observationally, can be observationally adequate, they're mechanically insane. And it's, so it's, that's a bad way to do a theory the way Ptolemy did. Do you agree with that? No, not at all. <laughs> uh, Why not? Newton theory is uh, is uh, is observationally adequate, and uh, from the point of view of uh, general relativity, it's just completely wrong because it it's assumed there is a force acting at a distance, and there is no force acting at a distance. I think that what happens is that we we develop some understanding of the world, and then uh, we learn better. We have more mm, tools, more intelligence, more history, more knowledge, and we get a better one, and then we get a still a better one. Uh, but that doesn't mean the previous one is stupid or badly wrong. They just means that they are good ways of viewing the world, uh, such that they're better ones. But wasn't it? A, but this part. But this is the thing that makes it. I, I get your point, but here's the thing on the other side. What kept them from realizing how wrong they were about one crucial thing? Yeah, that it's all revolving around the Earth. Once you give up that idea. 
Doesn't it become a lot simpler? I mean, isn't that a great unifying, clarifying insight that, that Copernicus or whoever first had it actually had? And why did it take so long for them to realize it? Um, they did have that idea. In fact, Aristarchus, uh, which is a great ancient <laughs> astronomer, had this idea and uh, wrote about that and uh, considered the possibility. It was very hard to make it work. In fact, uh, they had an argument against it. If the Earth goes around the sun, um, we are moving so back and forth, uh, and the stars, uh, uh, we should see the stars moving in the sky because of that, and we don't. The sky are pretty, pretty... The, the, the stars are pretty fixed in the, in the sky. So the only possibility would be that the stars are extraordinarily far away. So they sort of bulked uh, back uh, with respect to that. They were afraid of thinking the universe is so immensely great. But they did consider the, the, the possibility. Um, Copernicus knew that the Anseat had considered that possibility, so tried to use it again. Uh, it was not really able to do things better than Ptolemy. Copernicus' book is a sort of a new version of Ptolemy's book uh, with the Earth going around the sun, but it's not better than Ptolemy. It then took Galileo and Kepler and finally Newton to... to but it was not easy, not, not at all easy. Um, if you think it's easy to understand uh, that the Earth move, uh, uh, try yourself to get a good argument of it, a convincing argument of it. <laughs> it's not obvious. So, so uh, let me try out uh, a remark on you from a naive philosopher and see what you think. Uh, Ptolemy uh, had an observationally good theory, but it involved epicycles, which are weird. Nowadays, uh, people like yourself give us quantum theory, which is predictably very good, but basically makes no sense. And they, to they, common they, sense, anyway. <laughs> they bring in things like <laughs> charmed quarks and, uh, and other things that no one understands. So should it, it's a great theory. It's a wonderful theory. It's predictably great. But maybe we hope that some of these things will go the way of epicycles. Is that a fair point of view? Um, yes. I, I think as a, um, what do you say, as a naive physicist, let me try to answer <laughs> as a naive physicist. Um, <laughs> You're I, anything I, but naive. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, the... I think that on the one hand, uh, yes, and when there are things too much absurd, uh, it's probably uh, an indication that we can do better and we can find a better understanding. However, um, this does not mean that our common sense is reliable and we should bring back physics to common sense. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, people in New Zealand live upside down and time right. goes faster in the mountain than in the, <laughs> than in the valleys. And uh, uh, there are atomic uh, funny jumps. So there are a lot of... The universe is not what we thought before it is. So part of science is just uh, taking us out from... A previous uh, naive uh, view and this has happened uh, step by step and we learn better and sometimes we correct ourselves um, yeah so, so, I so don't one, know of the things, one of the things I'm getting from talking to you Carlo yeah tell me if this is right or wrong one of the things I'm getting if you look back at these ancient cosmological theories because here's a nice thing about them. You don't have to have degrees in higher mathematics or anything to understand them. And there's a lot of technical stuff in some of them, but it's within the compass of most of most well-educated, college-educated. If you look back at these cosmological theories and their gradual emergence and abandoning, one of the lessons you learn, I think, is that science is really hard. 
and there is no like mechanical process by which you can just apply this mechanical process and one theory will uh, replace another because the evidence says go away old theory i mean science is really really hard and it takes lots of kind of conceptual revolutions and conceptual leaps and tr trying really hard to keep bumping yourself up against these puzzles and the ancient cosmologists were doing this in spades is that a fair thought yeah here i would i would agree entirely with you it was ex extraordinarily hard to understand that the Earth is round. It was extraordinarily hard to understand um, that the Earth goes around the Sun. It was very, very hard to understand the universe is so large and so on and so forth. It was very hard to develop the idea of a force, a force acting between things. It was very hard to get away from this idea. So then when something is well understood, it's easy, it's easy to, to, to tell our children, right? Okay, it's, things are like that. Look how obvious it is and how stupid are the others who didn't get it. Um, but it's a long process to develop a view of the world. Yes, definitely. And it's a process that so far has not stopped. We're still doing that. I guess that's why I'm fascinated by the answered cosmology. Right. So this is what they're not quite going back to an axiomander. So you said things fall toward the earth. The earth is at the center and the center doesn't fall. Did he did he ask the next question? Uh, which seems to me the logical next question. Why do things fall toward the earth? I mean, what is it about the Earth that makes things? Is it just being at the center? But wait, but all those things way up there don't seem to be falling toward us. So why do things fall toward the Earth? Did um, he, that he didn't get to that. Aristotle got to that. Uh, we, Aristotle is a bit, uh, a little bit after him. Uh, a few generations after him, he, Aristotle knew Anaximander very well and tried to do better. And uh, doing better meant exactly uh, answering this question. And he gave a very articulated uh, and um, answer about why things fall. A complicated physical theory. Well, this one without very much mathematics. Um, which remained for very long uh, the best physics we had until Galileo, basically, until Galileo, Kepler, and, and Newton. Nobody could do better. And the idea was that, um, well, let me put it this way. Things fall, some things fall, right? Other go up, up. A little balloon full of helium goes up, fire goes up, smoke goes up, uh, wood goes down in air and up in water. So this is complicated stuff. And uh, uh, Aristotle had a, a, a theory that explained why something go up, why something go down, at which velocity. It was all a theory about uh, things having their nat natural place and trying to go toward the natural place. And then in the heavens was different and things were turning around in the heavens. So it was complicated theory, like our yeah. theories are a bit complicated. But and it, it lasted for a very long time. It had lasted for a millennium or more. Uh, in fact, for two millennia because uh, Aristotle is a few hundred years before Christ and, uh, and it lasted until Galileo. When Galileo was writing his book and struggling, he was always sort of fighting with Aristotle was like, you know, he was quoting Aristotle every single line and said, look, Aristotle says that, but look, this, this, um, using empirical argument, using rational argument, using mathematics. Uh, and uh, he couldn't find a convincing overall story like that of Aristotle, but Newton could. Much better so, one. Uh, <clears throat> in between uh, uh, Aristotle and, and Aquinas and before the scientific revolution, there was a major input from Islamic philosophy and science uh, did that I mean how big an impact did that have on, on this uh, development of the modern worldview well it's not easy to answer because in a sense uh, one has to be a little bit politically incorrect in answering um, 
the Islamic world had two uh, great contributions. One was the development of uh, mathematics, algebra. Algebra is, uh, is largely developed in the Islamic world. And the second uh, is that it, uh, the, the, in, in, uh, in, uh, in the Persian, Arab, uh, and Spanish, uh, Islamic uh, kingdoms, uh, uh, science continued. It did not continue in the old Roman Empire, in, in, in Europe. So those people understood ancient science and could preserve it and uh, bring it to the modern ages. But if we think about cosmology, um, there are good astronomers, um, famous astronomers, but what they did was just polishing a little bit Ptolemy, making yeah. slightly better here, slightly better there. There's no huge... Uh, uh, jump ahead, like uh, Aneximander was a jump ahead, uh, Ptolemy was a jump ahead, Aristotle was a jump ahead, Copernicus was a jump ahead, Newton was a jump ahead. I would not say that in cosmology, the Islamic world has a huge contribution of that sort. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're thinking about ancient cosmology. We'd love to have you join this conversation. And Ariane on, in San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Ariane. Thank you for taking my call. I just want to... Um say a few things, three things. I think that we have a problem with uh, Genesis myths, and they are myths when we um, interpret them concretely instead of understanding them as symbols. And that's not surprising because we're living in the most materialistic country the world has ever known, and that's related to how we understand reality and science and God. I think that we flatter ourselves when we assume that we're the only intelligent life in the universe it seems like we're, it's pure hubris or arrogance to discount that there could be a creative force, call it God, call it nameless, or even a set of laws. And we're, we have trouble when we equate that creative force with the image of God, which is based on how we understand humanity, which includes, you know, cruel authoritarian leaders, which are the image of leadership in the past. Okay, Ariana, I'm going to try and distill that. Lots of observations. I'm going to try and distill that to a question for our guests. Thank, thanks for the observation because uh, we're coming up on a break. So look, does science and modern cosmological science increase our hubris or decrease our hubris? I mean, in one, <laughs> in one, hand, in one way you could think it increases our hubris because it says we don't need God to explain this. But on the other hand, you could think it decreases our hubris because it makes us these small specks in the vast. I mean, so which does it do, increase or decrease our hubris? Uh, well, I, I think it depends who you are, <laughs> who you are, <laughs> how you react to things. Some, some people react one way, some people react the other. I personally would say that it, it does decrease our hubris because uh, for the reason you said, I mean, it, we, we, it shows that we are so marginal in the big cosmos. So there's this immense cosmos in which probably every sort of things go on. And, and we are here, little things, one among the others. Can I make a comment to the to the yeah, yeah. to the phone call? I I think uh, uh, the person who called said that uh, America is one of the most materialistic countries. She said yeah, something she like did that. Say that. It's surprising. I I live outside America. It looks uh, one of the countries where religion is more diffused and powerful and uh, present. America is a welter of contradictions. I mean, I sure. think we have, we have uh, we're one of the most religious countries in the world, but we're one of the most uh, rapacious capitalist countries in the world that, you know, diminishes all to naked self-interest and all that sort of stuff. So it's a complicated country. I wouldn't generalize about it. Absolutely. Well, uh, 
Four years ago, they asked the Republican candidates how many believed in the theory of evolution, and I believe none of them raised their hands. Oh. Maybe this year they should ask how many believe that the, uh, the Earth, Earth revolves around the sun. <laughs> but 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 I do want to get to uh, something else be behind Ari, uh, Ariane's question. I, I think there's something else. I mean, uh, John said Newton had these uh, theological ideas. I know Copernicus was a sun worshiper, and that's one of the reasons he he wanted to put he wanted to find a way to put the sun at the center of things. Modern science has driven out, many people think, religion from the square, period. Religion has no role in explaining the cosmos, its origins, its evolution. I mean, what do you think of that idea? Um, I, I agree. I think uh, religion may have something to do about uh, ourselves, how we feel about ourselves, our inner life, or things like that. Um, there are very different kind of religions, right? There, are, there is a variety of religions. Some of them uh, have no mm, pretense of explaining the world, uh, so there is no. I don't see any contradiction between their teachings and. Uh, um, and science. Other religions, I think, are a bit, little bit in difficulty because they have pretensions of explaining the world, uh, but then they have got it wrong. Of course, um, one can reinterpret symbolically everything, but then this becomes precisely a renunciation of, of explaining the world. Do you think that the attitude that modern scientists have toward the laws of nature is, is basically religious? No, I think, well, I mean, again, modern scientists uh, are humans. Uh, science is a human activity, which uh, uh, can be done in all sorts of different manners. And there are scientists who are, I know, I know scientists who are uh, ferociously atheist, uh, others who are, are very strongly religious. Uh, so there's all sorts of people. No, but, 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 I mean, but I mean, they, they accept the, the concept of the, of the universe being run by laws as kind of the end point. The, you can't pursue explanations beyond that. Isn't that kind of a religious point of view? Uh, well, I think science is not about uh, knowing the final things. It's just knowing one mm. thing after the other one. Uh, it's ah, not, okay. It, Good it's answer. Not, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're thinking about ancient theories of the cosmos with uh, Carlo Rovelli, author of Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. The cosmological picture that Aristotle, Ptolemy, and other Greeks developed was the dominant explanation of the cosmos for well over a thousand years until the Copernican Revolution. So what ushered in this major shift? And what does that tell us about how science makes progress today? From ancient cosmology to modern science, when Philosophy Talk continues. Hope you are enjoying the program. To keep our stream free, we need your help. Become a strategic partner. Donate $250, receive lots of benefits. But any amount helps. Let's get back to the program. Since the world is round, we'll be safe and sound. Till our goal is found, we'll just keep a rhythm bound. Shedding the ancient view of the universe to sail around to the underside of the world. That was Columbus's dream in 1492. I'm John Perry. This is 2016, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. Columbus's dream and the native peoples of America's <laughs> nightmare. Absolutely. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Carlo Rovelli, author of Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. And we're thinking about early cosmological theories of the universe. We've got a caller, Marga, from Oakland on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Marga. What's your comment or question? I really love this topic, and I can't wait to read the book. Uh, <laughs> I just you. wanted, on scientific relativism maybe, 
Um, even in 1960, I think the question of whether the Earth went around the sun or the sun around the Earth was maybe a little bit still up for grabs. I had a course in philosophy of scientific method with Professor Andrew Patterson, head of the chemistry department at Yale University, and he said that you could say either was true, that science leaned toward the Earth going around the sun because the math was a little more elegant. And and people scientists like elegance in their <laughs> mathematics. Well, let's see what Carlo thinks about that, Marga. Thanks for the call. I mean, could you really, really, truly, if you were as stubborn as and as willing to make many, many adjustments as possible, still insist that the sun goes around the Earth? I mean, could you really do that? No. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think so. So I don't know what well, this professor I mean, was telling. You we, 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 you could do everything. We were in a free country, so you you can think. Yeah, I, I guess behind the question is the thought that scientific theories are never decisively confirmed or decisively yeah. refuted, and it's always a weighting of evidence. And you know, multiple. You just what what weighs more in your mind than what? I mean, is there any? Is there any? It's the underdetermination of theory by evidence. Is the technical terms we philosophers of language of science like to use? What What do you think about that? I I think it's it's uh, what you say is exactly true. So uh, to be to be absolutely rigorous, we are not sure of of anything. Right, I mean, skepticism is always an option, but who cares? Um, we don't want certainty. Certainty is not is not interesting for us humans. We want reason, good reasons for believing something. I think my name is Carlo, but you know, maybe I'm, I'm, I've, been, I've been hallucinated by some aliens. Who knows? But who cares? I'm Carlo. I'm happy with that. Yeah, that's a good point. I often wonder if I might be Bob Dylan because I know all of his songs by heart. <laughs> uh, but... Maybe you are. <laughs> so, you know, the scientific revolution, a lot of people say what was key to that was science becoming a kind of autonomous discipline, divorcing itself from philosophy and religion. Well, I, I don't want to say anything about religion, but as far as philosophy goes, I'd like to think that philosophers continued and do continue to make a contribution. But not all of your physicist friends believe that. What's what's your opinion? I disagree with those physicist friends of mine. I disagree strongly. I think that uh, philosophy has uh, been uh, strictly tied to development of science for long, and the best philosophers have knew the science of the time and learned from that, and the best uh, scientists uh, knew the philosophy, ancient and, and, and the one of their times, and uh, used that heavily. Einstein was strongly influenced by philosophy, so was Heisenberg, and so was Newton and Galileo. Um, it's, it's essential because philosophy is, 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 is a way of questioning your worldview, of understanding, of understanding your mythology, of opening your mind, plenty of things. So I think the physicists or, or, or scientists who talk bad about philosophy, I would say, are not as good as Einstein and Heisenberg and Galileo. So, you know, I, I, I totally agree with you, but of course it's in my self-interest to agree. But, <laughs> but I, I, I want to I probe this thought a little more because I think, because I was reading some of your views about how science progresses, yeah. right? And uh, you have a complicated, I'm not sure I could summarize it in one or two sentences, so I won't try, but it seems to me that you think we kind of, some people think of science as kind of progressive, just building on, and you think of it as progressive in a certain way that mostly we keep the negative things, but to get new things, 
we have to often make kind of conceptual revolutions. Now, the reason I think that's important for philosophers is because that's one of the things philosophy is about, kind of probing the limits of our concepts, breaking them when they break, trying out new ones that do a better job. And it seems to me there's a kind of continuity, if I understand you right, between what I think of philosophizing as and what you think of doing science as. Do, do I have that roughly right? Yes, I, I, I completely agree. Uh, of course, I mean, there, there are different in methods, different in, in, in topics. So this is not the same thing, but there is a there is a continuity. Um, I think that scientists is not not, not just about uh, you know making measurements and writing equations. Uh, it's it's much more than that because uh, it's about developing a, a a way of thinking, a conceptual structure uh, for thinking properly about the world. Uh, and uh, going ahead uh, very often means changing your your common sense your conceptual structure you know when when you discover that uh, up and down are relative to the earth or that uh, being still or moving it's big be confusing because we think we are still but in fact the earth is moving or einstein that discovered that time is not what we thought it is this is always questioning some part uh, of our uh, what we thought were our a priori. Here's a a kind of naive conception of science that supposedly is distinguished from philosophy, say, uh, and other other modes of inquiry. It is answerable to the data and observation. It's driven by observation in a way that other things aren't, and it's answerable to observation in a way that other things aren't. So that makes it... But but then you think about how did uh, Galileo or Copernicus decide to put forth a hypothesis that, well, it's the Earth that goes around the sun rather than the other way around. Or Galileo argued, well, yes, the Earth does move, and he had these arguments. But that wasn't based on, like, simple observation of the data, right? That was, I'm not Uh, quite sure what it was based on, but it wasn't like, oh, look, see? Absolutely. Uh, It's even more than that. Copernicus had uh, uh, no observation more than Ptolemy. Um, He had exactly the same data. You just found another way of viewing that, another way of thinking about that. Um, no, I don't think there is observation, and then it follows. It follows the the so the, the wait a minute, Let me think about. It. So, if, obser- if if Ptolemy and Copernicus had exactly the same data, yeah, they do. Why do we think that? Why then? Not why now, because we got a lot more to go on. But why then? Did Copernicus start to emerge as the winner in this dispute? Was it additional observations, or was it? The elegance of the theory, or, or what was it? Um, well, first of all, Ptolemy is the end of a long of a process, right? Ptolemy lived in a moment in which already uh, people were stopping doing uh, good cosmology and and good science. Science had uh, um, humanity did good science in some period of its life, but not not always. And between the two, there is a, there's a millennium in which the, the the quality of science was much lower. Because is that the, the inter- fault of the church? I want yeah, to believe the that's church, the fault of the church. The the, the church, or meaning the the, the 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 Christian view of the world, was part of the of the diminishing diminished interest in in rational thinking about the world. So, certainly, in the Renaissance, things started changing again, and people felt free again to to try. So it was restarting a process in some sense. Um, Copernicus tried, and uh, through this that idea, worked all his life on this idea, right? Copernicus is not somebody who woke up one morning and said, oh, what about the Earth goes around the sun? He spent his life writing the book, essentially rewriting Ptolemy's book from the new perspective, 
Um, it sort of succeeded, but not really, because his predictions are not as good as those original one by Ptolemy. But it opened the way for Kepler uh, to, do, to actually do, mu- do much better. So the new way slowly turned out to work better. Kepler had new data, really, because there were oh, new, new, right. new observations, new astronomy. Right. And then it became clear that the new way of viewing things worked better. So look, I want to ask you another question. I'm going to ship ahead to. So here's a, here's something you think my, people might think: ancient science progressed slowly, laboriously, in these leaps by genius people who breaking out of mold, having to throw off the shackles of religion and all that sort of stuff. And modern science, not burdened by this stuff, progresses pell mell. With with forward with increasing forward speed, and it's all going to be solved in twenty years or fifty years, or you know, I mean, do you think that's a correct well, view? What well, one scientists are given way, adequate funding. If, if no, no, I don't. Yeah, adult <laughs> funding is 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 one one. But if people think this way, they should please come and help me in all the things that I can't do. I'm not able to do, and me and my colleagues. Um, look, the standard model of particle physics and general relativity are more than uh, respectively seventy years old and and a hundred years old. We have not progressed much in fundamental understanding of the physical world since. Progress is not fast. It's never been fast. There have been moments in which it goes faster. Um, but we're not, we're understanding something. We have seen gravitational waves. But in something I read, you yeah. said in something I read that your field has not made great progress in, I can't remember the time frame, but I thought you said decades. Is that is that a fair... Yeah, in several deca- decades. Uh, maybe because, you know, the people of a few generations before me were very good. Uh, <laughs> maybe some of the ideas around uh, are going to, be proven right. I hope my theory will go <laughs> right. I don't know. Um, uh, but uh, this idea, oh, we're jumping ahead super fast with respect to the past, uh, it's a little bit a perspectival thing, right? Things happening now seems always more than things happening in the past. But no, I mean, go, pushing science ahead is difficult. It requires a lot of mistakes, a lot of thinking, um, the right frame of mind, etc., etc. I, I'm I'm really glad to hear you say that because young people today think, oh, science, you know, it's learning the facts. It, it's really about hard problems unsolved and really precarious methods for solving those that we have to think up on the fly. And, and it's, I think it must be an exhilarating thing to be at the forefront of it as you are. But I still think a hard thing. It is an exhilarating thing. I consider myself super uh, happy because I have the chance, the fortune of uh, of doing this job. What is at the boundary between what we know and what we don't know is like a great adventure. It's like being a pirate. It's fantastic for me. Um, but the daily life is a frustration. Every day is a frustration. I suppose also being a pirate is a frustration. Every, <laughs> the life of so, the Carlo, day. I'm going to have to thank you for joining. This is a fascinating conversation. I could talk to you. We could talk to you for hours, but we're, thank we're, you. we're thanks a lot. Our guest has been Carlo Rovelli. He's a professor of theoretical physics at uh, Ex-Marseille University in France, author of Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. Uh, read that book. It's a fascinating, poetic, short read, but it's, it's beautiful. So, John, you got any last thoughts? Yeah, let's send a podcast of this to uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, but I don't suppose he'll listen to it. And why would you want to do that? Because he dumps on philosophy. He jumps on philosophy all the time. He thinks we have nothing to contribute. And uh, uh, and I'm glad that one of the best physicists in the world mm-hmm. uh, uh, disagrees with him. But you know what, John? This conversation, it continues at uh, Philosopher's Corner at our online community of thinkers where our motto is 
cogito ergo blogo. I think, therefore I blog. And just by doing something very, very simple, going to our webpage, uh, you can join our community, become a partner in our community of thinkers. Now, whatever they thought, the ancients definitely couldn't talk about the cosmos as fast as the guy coming up. Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, every culture seems to have its own creation myth, some metaphorical, symbolical, metaphysical, and or magical story that goes all the way back to before there was time, and stuff, and us, and lays it out in ways even a child could understand, sometimes in ways only a child could understand. Now, some of these origin stories, of course, seem mysterious and sometimes silly to modern folks like us who can mansplain pretty much anything, and for everything else, we have Google, who needs an education. In the ancient Greek myth, we begin with a void that has a giant bird in it, which lays a golden egg, and after centuries, it hatches Eros, the god of love, while the eggshell splits to become Uranus and Gaia, earth and sky, who fall in love, thank you, Eros, and the rest is history. The Norse myth begins with an abyss, which is kind of like a void, with a world of fire on one side, a world of ice on the other. They cast off spouts and fireballs into the void, and the resulting hisses and sputters create Emer, the first godlike giant whose sweat produces more giants, and the rest is history. Now, somewhere in the air, four dwarves wind up with the job of holding Emer's skull aloft. We know about this from the operas of Richard Wagner, who was not there. Nobody was, which is a funny thing about creation myths. How do we know all this stuff? Who is there to notice and write it down or memorize it for later and pass it down through the ages for us to know or sneer at after we learn science? Well, old grandpa storyteller around the fire may have been replaced by overeducated hipster with Google standing in line for brunch. But science and book learning seem under fire, so to speak, judging at least by the backlash to global warming fears and the teaching of evolution. And cosmology doesn't seem to be exempt. Now, a human observer of the very beginning of things always seems implicit in mythology. And the activity of creation itself often seems pretty human, with love and fire and the salty juices of work and sex and live things rising from dead things and young things killing old things. The Norse myth ends with Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods, when all the gods and everything dies. And a new cycle begins. It's constant and eternal. So in mythology, the gods are alive and dead at the same time, kind of like Schrodinger's cat. Unlike many myths, the Christian story has a beginning, but only one end, the end of the cycle. And the Christian creation myth, strangely, does echo the real physics as we now understand it. In the beginning, there was light. In the beginning, there was a big bang. What happened before that? Well, shut up. Keep moving. Nothing to see here. But again, there's an implicit witness here. Got to have eyes to see the light. Got to have ears to hear the big bang. So also, again, the mystery. If a universe is created in a forest before there's a forest in a universe for a person to hear it, is there still a cat in the box when the tree falls? I don't know. Nobody does. If they say they do, they're just a liar. I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2016. Our executive producer is David Demarest. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Dave Millar is our director of marketing. Thanks also to Merle Kessler, Mark Stone, Erica Topit, and Ted Muldoon. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and the partners at our online community of thinkers. And from the members of KALW San Francisco Local Public Radio, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. Yes, some uncomplicated peoples still believe this myth. But here in the technical vastness of the future, we can guess that surely the past was very different.
Holy mackerel, you're still listening. You must be a big fan. You should become a strategic partner. Donate $250, get lots of cool benefits, help keep the program on the air. Yeah, but really, any amount helps. Thanks for listening. Thanks for thinking. And thanks for donating.